So I'm going to read Matthew 25, um, verses 31 through 46. When he finally arrived, blazing in beauty with all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as shepherds sort out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter who you are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to your kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation, and here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when, he, and when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignorant, it was me. You did it to me. Then he turned to the goats, the ones on his left, and said, Get out, worthless goats. You are not worthy but the fire of hell. And why? Because I was hungry, and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was homeless, and you gave me no bed. I was shivering, and you gave me no clothes. Sick in prison, you never visited. Then those goats who are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? And he said to them, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignorant, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then the goats... Then those goats will be herded to the eternal doom, and the sheep will be to their eternal reward. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Awesome. I'm going to lead off our little presentation about our time in Liberia. And um, I'm just going to give you a, a short, I hope, uh, backstory. When we were planning this trip, uh, it, was, it was different than any other trip to Liberia I have been on because typically I go and most people from East Ohio go during the school year and then we just sort of plug into what's going on in the school. Uh, but this year, because we wanted to take youth from our own congregation, we went in the summer when school was out and arrived in Liberia d two days after school ended there. Uh, and then we offered them a two-week program of two different vacation Bible school curricula and some uh, academic uh, classes as well. So we had a, a day that was divided into in the first in the morning we did the VBS stuff and then we had a short break, and then in the, later in the day, in the afternoon, we had the, the academic portion. And when we were planning, we determined that we could probably properly serve and teach and work with up to 150 students. Uh, 
And we were told, you know, I asked, I was communicating by email with the folks in Liberia, and, and they said they had 144 students who were registered and would be there. And, you know, it was geared for children who were four or older and who had already been through what they call the, the pre-K, the, what they call the ABC class in the school at Camp for Mission. Uh, the other thing we decided to do was offer a meal. Uh, after all of the programming was done at the end of the day, so at about 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon, we would offer a meal to every student who participated and all of the teachers, any teachers who volunteered, and we also had um, older Liberian students who were our classroom assistants. Everybody was going to be fed. Well, <clears throat> what happened is that word got out that people were going to be fed in this program, and we ended up with 200 students who, en who enrolled. And there's just no way to turn people away. I mean, you can't. And the principal the, 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 and director of the, of the whole mission said, oh, we're going to take care of this. You know, n tomorrow morning, we'll, the children who are too young, we'll send them home. Well, you know, that just wasn't going to happen. We're going to let your six-year-old brother stay, and he's going to be fed, but the three-year-old, we're going to send home hungry. These, these are children who come some real distance to be in school, and, and they're not going to be fed that way at home. They're really not. And as it turned out, with some, a little extra money we were able to contribute from team funds and good management by the, the mission staff, we were able to offer a, a very small breakfast and, um, and the main meal of the day afterwards. Uh, so here you see in this, in this image the bol large bowls of rice waiting for children to come. This is the kitchen. This is the school kitchen where all the food for the 200 people was prepared for two meals every day. A very small breakfast which consisted of tea and a small piece of kind of fried bread like whatever, a, a biscuit of some sort. They called it a biscuit. Um, this is children lining up to get their meal in the afternoon after the end of the school day. And uh, this is more, this is actually after the meal and the kitchen staff are doing the dishes. They're, you know, reusing those tubs that were holding rice. They're now the dish pans. And um, this is a typical Liberian kitchen. This is what you would see in the villages. Um, and just as in American homes, most of the activity and hanging out happens in the kitchen, the same is true in Liberia. People are going to be sitting around in that kitchen uh, spending their time and not in the, the other building that would be where they sleep. Um, I'm not sure what comes next here. Okay, so my sort of closing thought about this meal program much as it would be nice and, and maybe even tempting to think that all those 200 kids showed up every day because they wanted what, what we had to offer, Sunday school and fun activities and science and math, and, and they did enjoy that, and you'll maybe hear a little bit more about that from uh, one of our other team members, uh, but I, I have to tell you that the real driving force behind that huge turnout was they were gonna be fed. For those of us who were on the team, 
None of us was starving, none of us really went hungry. We, we brought along snacks and we ate Liberian food, which is really delicious. Different from what we're accustomed to, but really good food. Uh, still, I, I would say that for us, we ate less generously than we typically do at home. But for the Liberians we fed, that was, prob for most of them, the two best fed weeks of their lives. And um, it was a pretty remarkable experience to see how, how children loved being fed. I mean, they just, they could not stop thanking us. And, you know, families would send gifts to the guest house to us to thank us for all we were doing for their children. And, um, you know, you all participated in that. So thank you, too. So in the months leading up to our trip to Liberia, we began curating our curriculum and assigning the teachers to classes. So I was assigned to teach students grade fourth through ninth mathematics, reading, and writing. So during this period of preparation, I felt a myriad of emotions. Of course, I was eager and excited and privileged to embark on this journey, but I also felt nervous. Not only was I traveling to a part of the world so different from anywhere I had ever, I had ever been, but I was also worried about taking on the role of a school teacher. I was worried about my ability to translate concepts, as well as whether or not my students would take me seriously, since I'm just a 17-year-old. But as classes began, I was pleasantly surprised. My students were very receptive to my team members and me. We were able to generate relationships that were never forced. After all, these students are accustomed to Westerners entering their classrooms for extended periods of time. The relationship with my students was more so a friendship. Many of my students were around my age or even older. In reading class, we began with our daily mantra. The only way to be a good reader is to read. We developed our reading skills by reading passages from the Bible, which also led into discussions about the lessons that Jesus taught. One of the most notable discussions was when asked how they help others. A student told me that he helps his friends with their tests at school. In writing class, we practice writing personal essays, focusing on the structure of sentences and paragraphs. Some of my most favorite memories were in my math class. My students were in grades sixth and seventh. We spent our two weeks focusing on operations with fractions. The students became so enveloped in their work that I would have to force them to move on to their next class when the bell rang. As an American student, I felt very inspired by the love for learning by students in Liberia. Unlike in America, many students do not have the opportunity to attend school. There's often not a school near the village that the student lives in, forcing them to walk far distances daily or not attend school at all. Many students have to leave school due to financial problems. They will instead work to support their families and young women will often become homemakers. Even if students can attend school, oftentimes the curriculum is subpar. No matter what, every student I interacted with was eager to learn. This new perspective has inspired a deeper gratitude for my own education. My short time in Liberia has opened my eyes to life as a student in an underdeveloped country. Although these students face hardships that are greater than anything I could ever imagine, they're still just kids like me. 
Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so Sydney had the older kids, but Jenna and I and a couple other people, we had the little ones, and there were a lot of them. Um, so while I was there, I got to work with what they call the ABC group, K1, K2, and then the first or third graders. The ABC group is the beginning of your education. Um, that would be equivalent to like a preschool classroom here, and then kindergarten one, kindergarten two, first grade, second grade, third grade, so on. Um, one of my favorite things, we gave the kids like little tags that they would wear and they were color coded depending on what grades they were in. So like ABCs had one color, K1, K2 had another color, first through third grade had another color, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, so on and so on. So you would ask the kids, what grade are you in? And they'd be like, um, and they'd be like, oh, what class are you in? They'd be like, oh, third grade. You're like, okay. Um, so. Raise your hand if when I said preschooler, you thought of a three-year-old. When I said kindergartner, you thought of a five-year-old. No. Most of these kids have to travel, like Sydney said, miles at a time to get to their school, and you're not going to send your three-year-old through the jungle. So they, a lot of these kids wouldn't start ABCs until they were like five, seven years old, sometimes older, sometimes younger, depending on if they lived by their school or not. So. Some of our ABC kids were five years old. Some of our ABC kids were 10 years old. It just, it kind of varied. It wasn't, and I didn't expect that when I went. I wasn't, I kind of pictured in my mind kindergartners, first graders, second graders, like we do here, but it was very different. Um, one of the ways that we definitely saw that was the first through third graders. I kept having authority issues with them, and I couldn't figure out why they were being so stubborn. And so I kind of, Jenna and I, we did uh, crafts together, and that was where we kept having some issues. And then we realized, like, if these kids were here, they would have been middle schoolers. So then it was kind of like, okay, that's why. <laughs> um, one of the ways, though, that helped us in, I think, in all of our classrooms, of keeping the classroom safe, keeping everybody secure, and the classes functional, was the Liberian helpers. Each classroom had like one to two, sometimes three Liberian helpers, depending on how big the classroom was. Um, Eric and I had like 80-something kindergartners and preschoolers, so we had like three Liberian helpers. That helped a lot, because they know so many songs, they know like, how to keep the kids engaged and how to keep them focused and learning. And so they definitely made it a lot of fun. And like, they, like when I say they know a lot of songs, they know a lot of songs. Like you think you know every song on the radio, they know every song on the radio, and they know every song in the Bible, and they know every song that they've made up, and they know every clapping song. They know a lot of songs. And they also know how to have a lot of fun, which I think that they incorporated a lot in their classroom. One issue that I did see was that in their regular schooling, they don't really teach the kids how to be creative. So like when we were going into arts and crafts and we would show them how to do them and then we'd say, okay, like now you guys can do this your way. Like they would all try to do it the way that we did it or they would all try to match the way that the person sitting next to them did it. They couldn't really figure out that they were allowed to do what they wanted to do. And it was really hard to show the kids like, the best way for you to expand is by figuring, like doing things on your own and being creative. Um, 
that was definitely something that we had an issue with, along with jumping grades. Has anybody ever jumped a grade? That's, yeah, if we were in Liberia and I asked that, I guarantee like 50% of you would have raised your hand. They love to jump grades. I had kids who I would be like in first grade and I'd be like, oh, like so how was kindergarten? They'd be like, oh, well, I was in ABCs before this. And I'm like, so you skipped K1 and K2? Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> um, but overall, my experience with the, all the little ones was a lot of fun. Um, it was kind of stressful because there was, to them, um, or to me, my, their English was not perfect, and to them, my English was not that great, so it was kind of difficult, but having the helpers in the classroom definitely made it a lot easier and um, made the classroom a lot more fun. So this picture up here is a picture of our morning program that we had before every class. Yeah. This is the math class, grades one through three, and you can see there are a lot of kids in that one class, but that was pretty normal. Yeah. Here they're counting shapes, and they're pretty excited about it. They don't get these kinds of foam shapes very often, so they really love them. Here was arts and crafts. From what I hear, it got a little stressful sometimes, but it seems like they're having a lot of fun. They loved the crafts, so that was great. Yeah. Okay, here's Sydney teaching a grammar class. This is Michael's science class. It was a lot smaller because he had some of the older kids, but yeah. This is the Brumskin High School in Monrovia. It was really cool to see this school. They have, I think, like they have middle school and high school and it's like all on a campus. And this, that's like the soccer field out in front. This is the, what the science lab would look like. This is, I think is pretty typical for a lot of schools in Liberia. They don't really have as much equipment as we have here, so it's very small. Okay, here we go. So before I get started really like talking about my experience, I'm just gonna like lay out some facts about Liberia. So Liberia has a population of 4.6 million people and 60% of them are under the age of 25. This is mainly due to the 14 year long Liberian Civil War from 1989 to 2003, during which 150,000 people were killed and another 850,000 people were displaced. Then from 2014 to 2015, the outbreak of Ebola occurred, killing more than 5,000 people and further crippling the country. Today, Liberia is the eighth poorest country in the world. So, yeah. Okay, so when the team and I were at Camp for Mission, we were able to tour the new housing for staff members on the mission. In 2012, our congregation made a commitment to raise about $25,000 to fund the construction of the housing. Um, we sent the first installment in 2013 so that construction could begin. The Liberian people went, got very hard to work. But then, in, hang on. but then in the second half of 2014 and during all of 2015, construction of the housing was halted because of the Ebola crisis. Um, the construction was again underway by January of 2016, and now by the end of 2017, the building can offer shelter to staff at the mission. So your donations helped give teachers much needed housing and your support is very important for the people at Camp Permission. 
So when we went, we stayed at the guest house at Camp for Mission, and the construction started in 2010 and was completed in 2013. And the guest house was truly a blessing to our team. We had running water, and it, like obviously it wasn't hot water, it was cold, and it wasn't clean, we couldn't drink it, but at least we had water so we could take a shower without having to go down to a creek and draw water. And we had electricity for about six hours a day, and we had two meals every day. So long story short, we had life much better than most Liberians. This is what typical Liberian houses look like. Um, the walls are normally made out of sticks and mud, and the thatched roofs are made from the leaves of palm trees. Some lucky fa families can afford a tin roof, and if you can see the house on the very like, far left has a tin roof on it, but this is not normally the case for most houses. Okay, so for this side, the building on the left is a house, and the building to the right is a kitchen. Um, the kitchens are typically outside because the kitchen is usually shared by all of the families in a particular village. So. so this is another typical house in Liberia. Obviously the back wall is falling down, but I, I think that someone is still living there because it looks like their laundry is laid out on the grass next to the house, and that's actually a pretty common sight to see in Liberia. So another common part of life in Liberia is walking. People walk almost everywhere. Some families are able to afford a pen pen, which is basically a motorcycle, and there are almost no cars, so naturally people walk basically everywhere. This includes walking to school like Allie and Sydney talked about. Most kids have to walk at least a mile to school in conditions like these, then they have to walk that same distance back home. Um, and on their way to school, children are often faced with many obstacles, such as like you know holes in the ground, fallen trees, or rivers. This is a makeshift bridge that we encountered on our way to one of the villages close to the mission. And while it's helpful for the kids to get to their school, it's not very easy to walk on. So the kids have to be coordinated enough to be able to cross the bridge in order to get to school. So that's why the, you know, the ages of classes can be very varied. Okay, so interestingly enough, when I returned to school in the fall, we ended up talking about poverty one day in my English class. My teacher asked us, do you think that living in poverty affects a child's ability to get an education? So I immediately like, nodded yes, but like a lot of my classmates shook their head no, and I was a little bit surprised by that. Like I know what they were thinking. Just because someone is living in poverty, it doesn't mean that they don't have the same potential to learn as someone who grows up wealthy. And I would, probably would have said the same thing had I not gone on this mission trip. But I now know that while poverty doesn't affect a child's ability to learn, it can, in reality, severely limit a child's ability to obtain an education. A child who can't walk to school or who is hungry or who has to look after their younger siblings because their parents are dead or abandoned them has a very hard time consistently going to school. So mission trips like these are really important. They can help show children the importance of education and they help give the people of Liberia hope for a better future. But they're also life-changing to the people who travel to serve. Not only have I formed friendships that will last a lifetime, but I've gained a new perspective on the conditions and challenges that other people have to overcome every day. So I would like to sincerely thank you all for your support of Camp for Mission, the Liberian people, and the life-changing experience that I will never forget.
Okay, all right. So um, a couple things. Janet mentioned earlier, uh, one of the differences that we decided not to subject you to today was me wearing the full Liberian garb with the matching pants. Another one is when we went to church over there in, um, in Monrovia, the main, the main city, church lasted for two and a half hours, three hours, something like that. Um, ours isn't going to be quite that long. But I could go on for a long time about just sort of what we experienced over there. Um, but instead, I'll just give you a, a brief little story that I, um, at least from my point of view, was interesting. And I was the only one that really got to experience it. Um, but before I get to that, I just wanted to, you know, tell you a little bit. When I, w w before we left, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, you know, I've been to Europe before, but that's kind of like the U.S. Um, but never to Africa. And, I, and Janet and, and Joy tried to explain to me sort of what life was like. But until you're there, until you land in the airport and you get on, the, get on a Jeep and you drive across these unbelievably beat up dirt roads back to the mission, um, you just don't understand. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, based on, based on what we're used to here, uh, life over there, is, especially in the villages, is tough, man. There's, uh, there's no electricity, there's no mail service, there's no running water, there's nowhere to go to the bathroom. Um, there's, you know, I mean, just everything, we, there's no garbage, you know, no one comes and picks your garbage up, man, there's nothing. Um, so, you know, it, it took a little bit of time to sort of figure out, you get your bearings straight and figure out how these people even do this. Um, and another thing they don't really have is, um, is a healthcare system. Um, this, is, this is in the clinic. I, I, on, on the last day of our class, I had a little boy come up to me and he said he hurt his foot the night before. He dropped a rock on it or something. And um, he was having trouble walking. So I picked him up and I carried him down to the, um, the clinic. And, and Nancy, one of the teachers, thankfully, came with me. And uh, we, we checked him in, and it was like sort of a system I can imagine that people used here in like 1905. Like they opened this gigantic book, and they write his name in. And it was, um, I couldn't understand any of it. Plus, I couldn't really figure out what they were saying. Um, but they sh have us go and sit on a bench, which is all outside. And we found a place in the shade. And, and while we were waiting, I got out my phone. And I started showing Nancy and this little guy some pictures on my phone. And pretty soon, all the people that were around, a couple pregnant ladies and a couple kids with colds and whatever, came over. And they started looking at my phone. And they were looking at our family pictures uh, from Florida. And uh, they, were, they loved the video of our dog playing in the snow because they don't know what snow is. Um, they had lots of questions about snow and how cold it gets over here. Um, but finally, it was our turn to go into the clinic. So we went in. Um, and this, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> this is not the Cleveland Clinic, I can tell you. Um, there were some posters on the wall, you know, there was, uh, this boy was, this is somebody else we met, he had malaria. Um, and malaria's a pretty common thing over there, it doesn't kill you after about age five or six, but it makes you really sick. Um, so there's cases of malaria all over the place. Um, as a matter of fact, some of our friends, like right after we left, sent us a Facebook message and said, ah, I've got malaria. Um, it's like the flu, I guess. Um, but so we go into the room, and, and there's a little, there's an old examination table that he sits up on. There's a nurse in there. Um, and she kind of felt around his foot, and, and he said, ouch, and ow. And um, she, she said, well, you know, I don't think there's anything major problems here. 
Um, and I don't know what they would have done if there was something bad. But um, they gave, she reached into a cabinet and pulled out um, some Advil, which is probably the same Advil that we had donated earlier in the week, um, and put some in a little Ziploc baggie and wrote a little note and put it in there and said, okay, here, buddy, take a few of these uh, every, every six hours. Um, and off we went. Um, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if he's ever taken medicine before in his life. I'm sure he didn't understand what she was saying. Um, luckily, we got back to the mission, and I, f I found his grandpa, and I gave him the baggie, and I said, here, he's supposed to take, you know, a few of these every six hours. Um, I'm not sure grandpa understood either, because uh, th they speak English, but not, I mean, they don't speak American English. They speak Liberian English, and I don't speak Liberian English at all. Um, so anyway, so these are some of the photos of the, um, of the, of the clinic. Um, but, you know, you go through that and, you, and, and, you know, it kind of makes you think about, holy cow, we are, you know, we're pretty fortunate here. When we get sick, um, I grab my insurance card, I drive up to Independence and, you know, I, uh, I walk into an air-conditioned building and go up the elevator and see the plethora of whatever doctors we need. Um, when we need water, we go get a Brita out of the fridge. When we, we need to wash our hands, we can go to the sink and squirt some, you know, soap on our hands. I mean, none of that happens. That's not what happens here. Um, um, but the most, I guess, you know, through all of that, what's the most amazing is that, um, you know, given their life situation and sort of given our life situation, um, we're all the same. I mean, we, we, uh, at night, we played cards, we played Uno with these guys. We, um, we had little dance parties and we sang along and danced to Justin Bieber songs and, and Adele. I mean, they know all the words to Justin Bieber songs. Um, you know, we played Frisbee, we played volleyball. I mean, it was, it was just like hanging out with kids over here. And, you know, and, and, and we, on our way over, we, we filled up luggage. We filled it up with school supplies and clothes and computers and stuff to leave over there. Um, and we left it all there, and we left even our luggage there because that's what they use as dressers in their houses. Instead of keeping their clothes on the dirt floor, they now have a little place to put it. Um, but we brought back a lot more than we took. We, um, we brought back friendships. We brought back uh, relationships. Um, we still, Megan, I know you do, Sydney, everybody, they text and, and, and um, Facebook message every day with these guys, and it's really cool. And, um, you know, and... and kind of at the end of it, no matter, you know, where we're from, kind of how, how our life, you know, sort of has played out, we're all the same deep down inside. So that's what I came back with.